Well, we return this morning to our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Naturally, that means that we're still in the book of Acts. Eventually, you guys are going to find this as funny as I find it. We sang, I love to tell the story. One of the things that I have observed, um, especially whenever I was working in the secular field, was that it's not always the person with the best idea or the greatest argument that gets their way. In fact, it's not always the person who has the most practical or the greatest application or even the best reasons that is most successful in convincing people to follow them. It's normally the person with the best story, the person who is able to tell the best tale and bring people along into that story. The gospel is the story that the Bible tells us, and it is a great story. I enjoyed Sunday school this morning, and Brother Lane made a comment about not always understanding what Paul's getting after. And I have good news. Sometimes Peter didn't understand either. <laughs> looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians, we are looking at one of the letters that Paul, is, um, that Paul wrote, or at least that he had a significant portion or part in writing. But of all of the letters that Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians, I think, is the easiest to understand. It's the easiest of all of Paul's letters to understand. We could get into the book of Romans and we'd never get out of it. We've looked at Ephesians before and there were parts of that that were complicated that we had to walk slowly through. 1 Thessalonians is so simple. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because the word of our gospel did not come to you only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know the kind of men we proved ourselves to be among you, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, so that you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the word of the Lord went forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but news of your faith went forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son in heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I've said in the last couple of weeks that this letter to the church in Thessalonica is of the most practical letters in all of the New Testament in terms of what real ministry in the church looks like. Why are we in the book of Acts? It's easy to read that letter and to see how simple it is and to see what Paul is saying, to, to look at the example of the church in Thessalonica and say, I want to be like them. I want to be a part of a church like them. I want to be an example to all the believers in Sebastian County and uh, Northwest Arkansas in general in the 4th District. I, I want to be like the church in Thessalonica. But we don't really understand the significance or the power of the punch in Paul's writing if we don't also understand the actual application or the actual experience that he had when he was among them. Let me ask you a question. How long does it take to plant a church? Modern church planting movements, three, five years. We have a church plant in Oklahoma City. They've been a church plant for seven years. How long does it take to plant a church? 
Well, some would say it depends on the quality of the church that you want to plant, right? If you give it more time, it'll be a more qualitative church. Well, what is the quality that we desire then? We desire a church that is filled with Christ followers, a church of people who are committed to the Word of God. How long does it take to organize a congregation of people who are committed to the Word? In the case of Thessalonica, it took what I think is a reasonable assumption maybe two months. Two months compared to seven years. How is that possible? Let me make a note real fast. Some commentators say that Paul was only in Thessalonica for three and a half weeks. After being shamefully treated at Philippi, arrested, by the way, we're, we're skipping the second half of uh, Acts chapter 16. We will be returning to Acts chapter 16 later in our study of 1 Thessalonians, but we're going to jump to Acts chapter 17 this morning to Paul's actual experience in Thessalonia. In Thessalonica, he comes after being shamefully treated in Philippi, traveling along the Ignatius Way. I remember we talked about this a little bit last week. I'm going to jump ahead real quick so we can look at the map. Where Paul was in Philippi after being redirected by the Holy Spirit in Asia, he goes through Neapolis, he ends in Philippi, he has a small preaching ministry there to the small things. He, follows, he gets arrested, he gets sent out of Philippi, he travels what is three days' journey through these other cities, Ampollonia and Amphipolis, so that he arrives eventually in Thessalonica, and he begins a ministry in the synagogue. That's how we wound up here. And for less than two months, Paul is going to minister to the people there. They're going to organize a church that in a few weeks' time, he will write a letter saying that they are an example to all the believers in this entire region, even to the church in Philippi. I want to be that church. The reason we're studying this letter is so that we can find out how, did, how was this accomplished? How was the church built in Thessalonica? How was their ministry structured? What were their priorities? How did the Word of God come to them? How did it work in them? What does it mean that it came in the Holy Spirit and that it came with full conviction? By understanding these things, we can then look at the letter that Paul writes and we can understand and extrapolate all of the impact of what he is saying. But first, we simply look at the text. Moving back. We'll look at Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through verse 9. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Ampollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So here we are in Thessalonica. We've made our journey. And the way that I want to approach this text this morning is a little bit different than what we usually do. But I think we find two examples of the way that people gather a following in this text. The first is in the godly organization of the church in Thessalonica, an example that we should follow. 
And then we also find an example of the jealous Jews whipping up frenzy, creating a mob, provoking um, this kind of insidious violence where they literally go into Jason's house to find the apostles, to drag them out, to take them to the city authorities, to lay charges against them and everything else. We find two examples of how people can be brought together. One is through preaching. The other is through provoking. Which one do we see more of in our church? Which one do we see more of in churches today? I think I'm guilty sometimes of provoking people. I I have an, an attitude that sometimes when people are disengaged, the easiest way to get them engaged is to push their buttons and then deal with the repercussions later. I don't think that's a good way of leading people. It's an easy way, but it's not always the right way. Paul didn't provoke the people in Thessalonica. He preached to them. He gave them the Word of God. And the people responded in that Word of God in such a way that even when persecution came, remember in the letter of 1 Thessalonians in the first chapter he says, And you became imitators of us and the Lord because you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Through genuine and authentic preaching, even though these people would face persecution, even though they would have much affliction against them, they, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, were able to hear the word of the Lord. So that even when Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and and Luke had to leave Thessalonica after only being there for a short time, a church was still established. And not only that, they weren't clotured in their speech. They They weren't silenced by the community that they were in. Instead, word of their faith had gone out in all of the region of Macedonia and Achaia. Paul leaves Thessalonica and he heads south to Berea. And heading south into this Achaia region, which you can see on the map, he eventually finds his way in Corinth. And you can just get the sense that along this way, he's trying to tell people what has happened on his journey as he has preached Christ crucified and reasoned with them from Scripture that it was necessary that Christ would suffer and that he would rise from the dead. And saying that this Christ is Jesus because he has fulfilled all of these things. You can almost hear Paul in Berea saying, just look at what God is organizing in Thessalonica. And the people say, oh yes, we've heard of that. We've heard how their faith went forth from them. What does it mean to preach? It might seem like a question that's only practical for a preacher. But I want to speak to churchmen. What does it mean to have real preaching in our lives? I could say that it's necessary that we come to church, that we hear the Word of God proclaimed in a community, and I would be preaching to the choir. You're all here on a cold, cold day in January. What does it mean to preach? Have we gotten used to provoking messages that whip us up and excite us? What does it mean to preach? Let's look at the example that Paul gives us. Verse 2, the text tells us that Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from Scripture. He reasoned with them from Scripture. Preaching is reasoning from Scripture. Matter of fact, we like to think of preaching, the type of preaching that I'm doing this morning, standing on a platform behind a pulpit so that you know that I'm speaking from the authority of God. All of these are symbols that let us know that this is the real deal. It helps me to take it seriously and somberly that I don't say things flippantly because I'm not standing on my own authority. I'm standing on God's. This kind of preaching is the Greek word keruso, to proclaim or to declare. In verse 2, we don't find the word keruso. 
we find the word deoligami. It's one of my favorite words in the Greek language. Deoligami. I'm telling you this because this word's actually more familiar to you than Caruso. Have you ever had a dialogue with somebody? What is a dialogue? It's back and forth, isn't it? The word deoligami is the word translated reason here. And it is the word that we get our root for the word dialogue. Preaching is a dialogue. It is a back and forth. As a matter of fact, I could give you some statistics on this. The word Caruso is only used a handful of times in the book of Acts, but the word deoligami is found 18 different times in the second half of Paul's letter to Theophilus. Theoligami, or dialogue, is the priority given in Paul's ministry to planting all of the churches in Asia and Europe. Dialogue is at the heart of what it means to reason with people from Scripture because it isn't just one person's ideas. It isn't just, how do we rule all of this out? How do we make sure that we don't have just one person deciding what the text says? God didn't give His holy and inspired Word to individuals. He gave it to communities. In the Old Testament, He gave it to the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, He gives it to the church, the gathered assembly of believers called out from the world so that they might be able to understand these things. Dialogue is at the heart of what it means to seek godly interpretation of God's Word. The opposite is what the Jews would do. If we jump down to verse 5, I think we find this example. The Jews were jealous, and rather than dialoguing, the verb they did, they said, and taking some of the wicked men. The word literally means to take along, to really steal their own will from them and to pull them along in in a particular direction. Dialogue allows people to walk in the story along with us. As a matter of fact, I think that dialogue is to discipleship what water is to a lake. The commission that was given to the church was to make disciples. Not to preach to people, not to take people along and make them believe exactly as you do, but to reason with people from Scripture so that they could grow in the Word for themselves. I mean, teachers understand this, right? Teachers aren't interested that we would memorize every single... Well, my... In, in third grade, my math teacher was. She just wanted us to memorize tables, and that's why I didn't do good math. They aren't interested that their students would memorize things, but they want them to actually learn them so that they can apply them to other areas. I mean, a good teacher, at the heart of a good teacher, realizes that someday they will not be there for their students. They won't be there to tell them what to think. They won't tell them how to process things. They won't tell them how to analyze things. Someday they won't be there. Good parents realize this. Good parents realize that they can't do everything for their children. And so instead, they set out to reason with them in the best way that they possibly can so that someday when they are not there, they can apply the same method, the same reasoning, the same logic, the same skills to other areas of their life. Do you know what it means to take, make disciples? It means to show them how the Word of God speaks into every area of their life. We can go through the Bible and we can define what morality is. We can define every ounce of it. But I have a question. When your parents were teaching you the Bible, when you were growing up, did your parents have any idea any concept that someday there would be social media platforms that people get on and fight with each other over? Were there any biblical moral guidelines to direct the way that you uh, interact with Facebook when it first came out? It was a new frontier, wasn't it? All of a sudden it was brand new. And how do Christians act on Facebook? Unfortunately, I'm seeing some people smirking. 
Because I think if you go and look at Facebook, it would be hard to discern who are the Christians and who are not. Here's the real shortfalling of the church. Rather than making disciples, we've made robots. If we had made disciples, if we taught principles instead of rules, as we come to new frontiers like social media, and I don't know what the next new frontier is, but I know that there's one coming. As we come to these things, we will know how to pull out of Scripture what we need to inform the way that we interact with the world around us. See, it's it's not about telling people what to think. Really, making disciples is teaching people how to think. It's showing people that we have an authority. Unfortunately, we find that Paul's custom was to go to the synagogue where there were a group of Jews, people who already had submitted to the authority of God's Word. This is the first step in disciple-making. Just admit that the Word of God is the authority for all your conversations. In fact, even with unbelievers, if you can get them to submit that your authority is the Word of God, and that any conversation that the two of you have pertaining to spiritual things has to go back to an authority, you can begin the process of discipleship before someone's even converted. This is what Paul did. He had a dialogue. He pulled from Scripture and reasoned with the Jews that were there. Well, preaching is more than just reasoning. It's more than just discussion. It's more than just back and forth. Look at what he does. He also explains from Scripture. The verb here literally means to open up. I love that. To explain in the Greek is literally to open up. He opened up the Word of God in the synagogue. And he showed how in Scripture there were prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to the necessity of the suffering servant. I imagine he opened Isaiah 53, but that wasn't the only chapter he turned to. He went to Genesis chapter 3 and saw how it was necessary that the serpent would bite the heel of the son that crushed the serpent's head. He explained how all of these things had meaning. He opened up the text and he unleashed it. He showed what the meaning was and he explained it carefully and methodically. Doesn't make for a very good story, does it? I think we've grown a little too addicted to stories. He explained from Scripture the meaning so that he could prove the point that he was trying to make. This is the third point, that he would prove from Scripture these things. Literally, to lay aside an example of evidence that all of the things that he was saying about the Messiah weren't made up. They weren't recent conjurations, that they were founded in what God had already said would happen, and they were fulfilled in Christ's suffering and His resurrection. The inverse, the opposite, we want to compare and contrast. Preaching is reasoning, explaining, and proving. Provoking, on the other hand, is taking people alongside us. And instead of opening up the Word of God and explaining Scripture, if we look again in verse 5, these Jews took some of the men of the rabble, they take them along, they take them for a ride, they form a mob. Now look at this. These are the easiest people in society to get worked up. People that are already men of the rabble. They're sitting around and they have nothing to do. Give them a direction. Now, I've actually said this as a leadership principle before, and I still think it's true. I think the greatest success I've ever had as a traditional leader has been in being able to work with people that have bad attitudes. This has really been the key to my success. Anywhere I've gone... I can work with the people that no one else wants to work with. Remember when I was, uh, my, one of my previous jobs, I had a task of creating a brand new team from nothing. We were going to do something that we had never done before. Again, new frontiers had to be explored. And as I was interviewing for these positions from people that were already within our company and already had the skill sets that we needed, I chose two of the most 
underrated people in our entire company. You know why they were underrated? They complained all the time. I mean, all the time they complained. They were negative. They were hard to work with. They were difficult to direct. You know what I love about people like that? People who are still complaining are people that care about doing a good job. They might get frustrated with the direction that leadership takes. They might get frustrated with this, that, and the other. But they're not just there for a paycheck. They want to contribute. So I established a team of five different people. Two of them were the hardest people in the company to work with. And I gave them a direction. I told them a story about what they could accomplish if they simply stuck to the task at hand. I painted a picture of how much we could accomplish for ourselves as a team. And I, I told them my goal, my goal in, in establishing this team, I'm a very selfish leader, is that we could all sit and do nothing for the rest of the year. And we can do that if we get to work right now. Hey, and we did it. We saved one of the biggest real estate company, uh, retail companies in the world $3.5 million in three months. All I did was give the cantankerous people a direction to go in. This is what the Jews did. Except they used that same power, which could be used for good. They used it for evil. Rather than reasoning, rather than explaining, rather than proving, they simply worked up the men of the rabble so that they would form a mob, so that they would set the city in an uproar, literally to make a big ado about nothing. It's honestly too easy to provoke people. People are too easily provoked. Finding people's buttons... It doesn't take a genius. Directing people in a particular direction isn't actually hard work. I mean, it's a combination of keeping your mouth shut at the right times and speaking up at the right times. Is that a spiritual work? Is that the work of God? Is that receiving the Word of God with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction? It's not. I think the true church looks back to this example of discipleship, looks back towards this goal, and says, I don't just want to work people up. I don't want to just make a large ado. I want to reason with people from Scripture. I want to find the things that we disagree about, and I want to sit down and have a dialogue. I want to sit down and discuss what God's Word says, not just in one portion of Scripture, but I want to understand it holistically. I want to know how Scripture interprets Scripture. I want to be able to explain all of these truths, not just so I can apply them to my current circumstance or what I'm currently going through, but so that I can apply it to what I will face tomorrow when I'm by myself. I want to be able to prove from Scripture that what God is saying is true. This is what preaching is. This is what discipleship's based off of. This is what builds the church. This is what makes it possible for a church to be planted in less than two months. We also see an example of, of growing in Scripture. Because it's not just about what Paul did. It's also about how the people responded to him, isn't it? And this is the thing about preaching that we often overlook. We think it's a one-man show, but... Preaching is a corporate act of worship. It's something that the church does together. It's just like singing songs. It's just like praying corporately. If you're not interacting with preaching, then we're not really preaching, are we? Preaching is something that we do as a church. It's not something that I do as a pastor. The people heard Paul's argument. 
They heard him reason, they heard him explain, they heard him prove, they heard him tell them about how it was necessary that Jesus would, and let me make a note about this. There are some popular Christian teachers today that are saying that it wasn't necessary for Jesus to die on a cross. You guys, Acts chapter 17 tells us otherwise. The Word of God, breathed out by inspiration, according to the way that Luke records this history, says that Paul argued that this Jesus needed to suffer and be resurrected in order to build his church. That's just a quick note. That's just an aside. So if you hear that, you know that that's malarkey. And you can prove from Scripture that it's not true. But the people responded. Verse 4 says that they were persuaded. They were being persuaded by the Word of God. Here is my fear when I look at the lack of discipleship that has been accomplished by the church. We have a lot of beliefs. Beliefs that may have been reasoned, but were they reasoned from Scripture? They may have been explained, but were they explained from Scripture? Beliefs that we are so sure have been proven to us, have they really been proven by Scripture? I mean, think about it. We're critical as Christians of anything that disagrees with what we have been taught. And we should be. We should be critical of anything that challenges what we have been taught. We should be critical. We should break it down. We should find out, is that the truth? We should look back at Scripture. Are we just as critical of the things that we're confident in? When I hear Christian teachers say things like, it wasn't necessary that Jesus had to die on the cross. That only happened because of man's wickedness. God, if he really wanted to save everyone, wouldn't have had to do that. And I've heard Christian teachers say this. It makes me want to recoil inside of myself and say, what in the world is going on? And who are these people that are following him? Why do these Christians not have any sense? They're being misled. They, they don't have a pastor. They don't have a shepherd. They have a wolf in sheep's clothing. Somebody needs to address this. Somebody needs to correct this. And I think all of you have the same reaction when you hear things like that. When you hear a teaching that says that Jesus Christ wasn't actually fully man, that he was so godly that he actually just looked like a man as he walked on earth, does that not make you want to recoil? Do you not see that it's necessary that God would become human, that he could identify with us, that he could take, his, take our place? All of these things are necessary for salvation. When I hear these things, it makes me, it makes me want to throw a fit. I mean, there's part of, part of me that really just wants to get people worked up and say, hey, quit sitting around and doing nothing. Get on Facebook and just shout really loud and see if you can convince people that way. We got to do something, people. But do I take the time when what I believe is contradicted to go back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture prove? How can I explain this? How can I explain that it was necessary? How can I reason with these people? I mean, by all means, if there's any hope of seeing somebody as misguided to believe in a heresy, to come and know God, isn't it necessary that I would reason with them? And after all, if I really love people, isn't that my goal? That, that I would reason with people, that I could bring them to God? Or do I just not care? <laughs> I mean, because there's some Christians today, it looks like they just don't care about these people. They would rather lambast them. They would rather put them down. They would rather speak in pejorative language and make them feel so small and so belittled that they honestly lose any opportunity of ever having a hearing with them, ever being able to contend with them from God's word. They would rather make sure everyone knows where they stand without any concern that other people would know the truth that comes from Scripture. There's wisdom in being gentle with God's word. There's wisdom in approaching people with compassion and being patient with them. There's wisdom in waiting for the Holy Spirit to do the convicting instead of trying to be the Holy Spirit for someone else. Because godly people, when they hear the word of God explained, they are persuaded. 
Literally to believe, to have confidence, to trust, to obey, to yield to the Word of God. I I hear these kinds of things. I've had some experience with small group Bible studies in the past. And I've had some failures and I've had some successes. Those failures have been my fault and the successes have been God's fault. I'm sure of that. The first small group Bible study that I was a part of, we went slowly. We built a foundation of God's Word being the authority. We taught each other how to have conversations so that rather than saying, well, I think that God wouldn't, you know, so on and so forth. We would say, what does the Bible say? Well, that's well and good, but what does the Bible say? What does the text say that we're studying? We built that foundation. And when you're involved in small group Bible study, you get to talk about things that are a little bit more personal than we get to talk in large formats. Eventually, things like the sanctity of life come up. That's a touchy subject, isn't it? Aren't all Christians united on this, that we believe that life is sacred because man was created in God's image? Aren't we all united in that? The truth is we're not. The truth is this isn't a two-sided conversation. There's a lot of different degrees about the way that people think about the holiness, the specialness, the sacredness of God's creation, what he does in creating a person. I could tell you what I believe, but would it do you any good? Would it convince you? It's better just to reason from God's word. It's it's better to take a step back and to say, I'm not the authority and neither are you. God's word is the authority between us and this is what God's word says. God says that he creates man in his own image. That humanity is distinct from all other creation because we're created in God's image. There's a certain degree of God-likeness inside of each and every one of you. And the Bible tells us the story of how God knits together in the womb from an unknown substance what forms a human. Psalm 139 tells us the story of how God plants inside of the mother's womb everything that grows into a child. The prophet Jeremiah records that even before he was born, God knew him and knew the plans he had for him. I think God's word is sufficient to say that all life is special and worthy of dignity and respect. Even then, Christians will disagree on different issues. When we really start playing this out and all of the implications that come with it, all of the implications of believing in real, genuine, authentic life and believing in its holiness... Do we reason from God's word or do we play to the arguments that are already around us? Are we worked up into a frenzy and taken along with these other arguments? Can I tell you something? And this is personal. I'm really using this as an example. And if you don't agree with me, that really is okay. On the abortion conversation... The, the major powers that be, the major movements that are in opposition against abortion are constantly fighting for legislation that is incremental. That means they just want to regulate abortion. They want to regulate it, regulate it, regulate it, regulate it, regulate it. There's a reason I'm not a politician. I think on something that the Bible is so clear on, regulation's really pointless. I think it's cowardly. I think it reveals that they don't truly believe what they say they are believing. Because I think abortion's murder. Period. I think murder is a criminal offense. I think murderers should be charged with criminal offenses. I don't think you regulate this issue. And I realize that that is a hard stance to take on something like this. But when I reason from Scripture what it teaches about the sanctity of life, 
The only thing I can see is that abortion is murder. I don't know how I got here. This was not in our notes. I think the issue is how do people grow in the word? Because we might have different opinions, we might have different perspectives, we might have different ways of thinking about these things, but I think truly growing in Scripture means that we are persuaded by God's Word. I mentioned that part of what persuaded means is to yield to the authority of Scripture. And that means when we're challenged on issues like this. Just as one example, we could run down the list of controversial issues in the church. Nationalism, American exceptionalism, all of these different things that can get people worked up. Do we yield to what the Bible says? Or are we allowing ourselves to be the authority? Are we explaining to one another what the Bible says? Are we proving from what the Bible says? Are we preaching through dialogue with one another? Are we growing by being persuaded? Are we growing by by joining with other believers? Here's the real problem with individualism as it's become known in the church. This idea that we're better off on our own or that we all we need is the Bible and uh, we will be able to grow as close as we possibly can with God. First of all, I believe that that's a lie because the Bible wasn't given to an individual. The Bible was given to a community. I've already said that. It was given to Israel in the Old Testament, to the church in the New Testament. If it's just you in the Bible, you're the only person that gets to interpret that, which means that you have no one challenging what you believe. You have no one pushing you to explain those blind spots that you have. You have nobody forcing you to grow. And honestly, I think the reason individualism's become so popular in the church is because people don't truly want to grow. I think they know this as well as everyone else, that if it's only them interpreting Scripture, they can believe whatever they want. The reason we have the authority of the church is so that we can decide these things. Rather than being like this group of the rabble that formed into a mob and set the city in an uproar, these people weren't being persuaded. They weren't even using arguments that came from themselves. Look at what they said. The charges that they laid against uh, the the city authorities or the um, politarchs, what they laid against them, verse 6, about halfway down verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. If this was their own argument, they wouldn't have said that. Because Christianity, wherever it has gone, has made for better citizens. It has made for better employers, better employees. Christianity makes for better people. I I really believe that. Do you believe that Christianity makes for better? It really does. This is a practical thing. This is why Constantine eventually made Christianity the national religion of Rome. He saw what it could do. And they say, despite this, not knowing what had taken place in Philippi or in Antioch or in any of these other places that Paul had been on his first missionary journey or so far in the second, they say these men have turned the world upside down. Christianity, I think, certainly reverses the natural way that we have to think about things. This is what Jesus did throughout his ministry as he dialogued with people. He taught them that their way of thinking was upside down. When the apostles came to him asking who could have a special seat, he said, you want to know who has a special seat at my father's table? Those that make themselves last. There's a backwards way of thinking about leadership. Christianity doesn't set the world upside down, though. Sin's already done the work of setting the world upside down. Christianity sets the world right side up. They wouldn't have made this argument if they knew what they were saying. Really, I think they're offering the church a compliment. The second thing that they say is that what they're doing is against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. I think this is kind of marvelous. That even these unbelieving men of the rabble, people who stirred up trouble in the city, these low-life degenerates that stood on the street corner and waited around for merchants to drop all of their goods that couldn't be sold that day, what did these people do? They realized that Christianity has a king. 
I wonder if most Christians realize Christianity has a king. When we're more committed to what we think we believe than what the Bible says. When we don't allow ourselves to be persuaded by Scripture. Christianity has a king. And this king is Jesus. This is a fact. But can I tell you what this fact actually does for the decrees of Caesar? This fact legitimizes government on earth. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 19. You can look that up later if you don't believe me. But rather than saying that declaring Christ as king, somebody who is in heaven as king, as an authority above all of the worlds, that that undermines earthly authority or earthly government, it actually legitimizes it because that means that by heavenly authority, God allows everyone who is in a leadership position in government to be there. So long as there's not a direct contradiction to Scripture, Christians are to obey the decrees of their world leaders. It's necessary not only that we are persuaded by God's Word, but that we join with other believers. That we do not allow ourselves to be the only authority. I mentioned that at the heart of discipleship is dialogue. I would say isolation is the opposite of that. Isolation erodes discipleship. Isolation or making oneself out into an island by themselves and not contending from Scripture, not allowing what we believe to be challenged, not growing in the Word, not participating in dialogue, but instead having hateful, insidious, or divisive speech. All of these things are really the opposite of what it means to grow in discipleship or even to help someone, even to love someone. You know, I've heard it said before that the loneliest place is a room full of people who are supposed to love you. I don't know if you've ever experienced that phenomenon. You walk into a room full of people and you still feel alone. You still feel like you're there by yourself. There's a lot of different ways that we might look at that and try to explain why that happens, whether it's clicks, whether it's, you know, all of these different things. I really don't think that those are the main problems, though. I think the most common cause to feeling lonely in a crowded space is actually on the person that feels lonely. You hide your true self. You don't express yourself. You don't express what you're thinking. And you know what the problem with that is? Even if you're wrong, you don't allow yourself to be corrected. So you go off thinking that you're right and that everyone hates you and that they're the problem. Where is the expression? I look at the church planting model that's taken, kind of has built up over the last couple of years, the way that we do church planting today. And it seems like there are a large majority of people that want every church to look exactly the same. I mean, there's a joke in missionary Baptist churches that we all have this color red carpet. They call this missionary Baptist red. And it doesn't matter if it's an ABA or BMA church. Nine times out of ten, if you go to a missionary Baptist church, you will find this color carpet. I don't think the Southern Baptists have a carpet color. I think that's just us. I don't know what my point is with carpet color. Something's going wrong with my brain today. We hide our true self. Not every church should look exactly the same, you guys. They should all submit to Lord Jesus. They should all obey the commands of Scripture. They should all practice what the Bible teaches. They should all earnestly live for righteousness. But not every church should look the same. Some churches have pastors that wear ties. I like those kinds of churches because I wear ties. But if I went to a church and I was the only one wearing a tie, 
I think I could still worship with God's people without isolating myself because they didn't dress the way that I dress. Some churches say amen as the preacher is preaching if they agree with something that he says. Some churches do not. Ow, that kind of hurt. Some churches clap their hands whenever they're singing songs as they feel led by the Holy Spirit. Some churches don't even obey the instructions of their worship leader when they're told to sit down and stand up. Some of them just stand up when they feel led and sit down when they feel led or when their legs get tired, whichever comes first. These things aren't chaotic. They're expressions of worshiping God. The church, in order to be a self-sustaining, self-governing, self-loving church, all these things that as Baptists we love, has to be self-expressing. That means that we don't believe things just because everyone else believes them. We believe things because we've reasoned from Scripture, explained from Scripture, and proved from Scripture that this is what we believe. <coughs> the other things that aren't mentioned in Scripture we do because they're an expression of who we are. They're an expression of how God has made us and led us to be. Now listen, I, I like this church because... I think it doesn't matter how you dress here. I make a joke about wearing a tie, but you could come to this church with bedhead and everyone would love you the same. I think this church genuinely loves people, but do we truly express ourselves? As individuals, I think one of the reasons we feel lonely in crowded spaces is because we try so hard to be perfect that we never really let our imperfections be accepted. I have imperfections, and you all know it better than most. When I tell people that I'm a pastor of a small congregation in a rural uh, district in, in southern Sebastian County, they just think that I'm a good preacher, never having heard me preach. You all have endured my preaching, and you know better than that. You know that I lean towards the nerdy side. You know that I can jump off on tangents about things, and you, you know that I have very... Um, strong opinions about things that are different than your own. But you've accepted me for all of those faults, haven't you? If you haven't, the altar's open this morning, okay? <laughs> I know your faults. Some of you have allowed me to see into your life and to see your imperfections. Some of you have been honest with me about your struggle to study the Word of God, even your struggle about being sure of your salvation, even struggles about trusting God in your life. I've accepted you for those imperfections. I'm able to accept you for those things because I've experienced them too. You know, most of the time when we're afraid of letting people see our flaws, it's because we don't believe that everyone else has them too. I like the saying, everyone puts their pants on the same way every morning. We've all got our flaws. Rather than trying to be perfect, we should really try to be sincere. Another reason why we might feel alone in a crowded room is because we live with a victim or superiority complex. I've struggled with both of these. Sometimes I make myself out to be the victim most notably, anytime I'm reading through the Minor Prophets, I always kind of feel like the world is out against me. It's something that just happens when I read the Prophets. It just does. I feel very alone. I pray that God uses that season, those seasons of my life for His glory. Other times I read Paul and his boldness in the Word, and I read about how Peter struggled to understand him, and I feel superior. Both of these both of these errors make us feel alone. And they're both lies. You know, I believe it's actually Satan's agenda to make us believe these kinds of lies. Because if he can make people feel isolated and lonely, you know what they stop doing? They stop trying. And eventually when they stop trying, they're not working towards anything anymore. Is Satan winning in the church? Has he made you feel alone in your own community? Are you the problem because you don't give people a chance?
When we look at this example of preaching and everything that comes along with it, we find how Paul and the missionaries were kicked out of Thessalonica. The city authorities in verse 8 took Jason and the other leaders that were established in the church in this short time, two and a half weeks, some commentator, three and a half weeks, some commentators say. It was at least three weeks because he was there for three Sabbaths, right? So three and a half weeks, some commentators say. Up to two months, the Jewish authorities in this city, along with the rabble, take the people to the city authorities, the governing authorities, the city council, and they lay these charges against them, and they take money as a security from Jason and the rest. And if we, if we keep reading to verse 10, the brothers in the church immediately send Paul and Silas away by night. I think what makes the letter to the church in Thessalonica so special is that Paul had to go through all of these different events. He had to want to go and preach in Ephesus. He had to want, and want to go preach down in the south. Asia area, to preach to this area that he was familiar with, where he was more familiar with the culture, and God had to redirect him and tell him no. He had to want to go into Bithynia. He had to want to go up there to preach in a place that he would have been more comfortable in, but God had to tell him no. He had to have some success in Philippi and be arrested and be charged and all of these things, and he had to be sent to Thessalonica. He had to see what God was able to do in the small things to believe that after three and a half weeks, that after only being there a short time, a church could be founded, organized, and last. So that when he came into Thessalonica, whenever they faced this persecution, he could believe that God was the one that was capable of doing the work. We're going to spend a little bit longer in Acts. In the next coming weeks, we're not done with Acts yet because Paul's not yet to the point where he's going to write the letter. First, he goes into Berea, and then he goes into Athens. While he's in Athens, he sends, Paul, he sends Silas and Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on this church, to find out how they're doing. And when they return to him, he writes... We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. When he gets this news that this church is doing so well and that it is so established, it moves him to write what is the most sincere, most authentic model for ministry that the church has today. Because he believes a simple contention that... God is enough to bring his people together. That God is capable of bringing his people together. I've struggled with feeling lonely among Christians. Why? I don't like the rules. I'm a millennial. Hey, this is a generational problem. This isn't just me speaking. I think this is an entire generation that is struggling with the church because they aren't able to feel connected. What I've found is that when I get together with sincere and authentic Christians, it doesn't matter how different our life is, God is able to knit our hearts together. I'm so thankful that uh, I moved to the Fort Smith area. I had a good community in Northwest Arkansas, but we were all the same. The only people I spent time with were uh, other BMA pastors. Well, we don't have any BMA churches near us. The closest one's in Mountainburg. Brother Jim's very sick and I haven't been able to spend a lot of time with Brother Jim like I would like. The other closest churches in Roland, Oklahoma, they haven't had a pastor for the past seven or eight years. The nearest church to us is in Ozark, and that pastor had really disassociated from us. So what did I do whenever we moved down here, when we came to Fort Smith three years ago, as, as we've been serving as a, a, here in, in, at Denver Street? I started making friends with people outside of my circle. And the real wackos, guys... The IFB folk. The preachers that yell and stomp. Made friends with people that maybe they don't believe exactly like I believe or they don't work exactly like I work. And God has knitted our hearts together in special ways. Our revival that we had earlier this year is a testimony to that. There's only one BMA pastor in that entire conference. One other BMA pastor. They were great preachers. 
And our hearts were knitted together. Brother Gary's come back on multiple occasions. Some of you have asked me if I ever consider resigning as pastor, could we call Brother Gary? I don't blame you. I've thought about calling him for myself. He's a good preacher. Michelle and I go and have dinner with him and his wife, Becky, regularly. We love each other. God is capable, and, and our lives are totally different. I live in a neighborhood. He lives in a farm. I've got two toddlers. His kids are grown up. We have so much in common. We love God. We love God's people. We want to see what's best for the church. We're concerned for the church. We want to fight for the church. We want to love God more. We realize that we're the failure most of the time, that we need to love God more in order for God's people to love God more. God has brought our hearts together in such a way that we have friendship and kinship and, and we get to call each other brother. And that's, just not, that's not just a formality. Think about this when you come to church and you call me Brother Derek. That's not a formality. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to call one another brother and sister. It's an example that we find of kinship. It's something that we steal from another culture to apply to the closeness that we have in Christ because we don't consider ourselves our own. We consider ourselves adopted by God by joining together with the believers. Psalm 118, 22 and 24 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Christ was the cornerstone that was rejected. Paul's teaching was rejected by many of the people, but they still came together. Loved ones, that same psalm in verse 8 teaches us that it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. If you come here because you like my preaching, I'm flattered. I also think you're lying a little bit. That's also a sin you should repent of. If you come here because you feel knitted together in the kinship of God, then continue to take refuge in the Lord, not in the wisdom of man, not even in yourself. God is sufficient to bring his people together. What is the ministry of the church? How does she accomplish her goal? Is it through a pulpit-centric ministry? Is it through gimmicks and programs? Or is it through established relationships? Is it through intentional discipleship? Are we a people who are contending from Scripture? Or are we a people stirred up for a cause? Are we persuaded and joined together? Or are we lost in a crowd? This morning, I plead with you that you wouldn't allow yourself to be lost in a cloud, in a crowd, or a cloud. Yeah, he said cloud. Either one, cloud would be bad too. I want to plead with you that you would allow yourselves to be joined together. This is normally our, our time of invitation. What we normally do at this time is we sing a song and we ask people to come forward so that they can commune with God in a special way that they can do it in a corporate way. This is different than what you do at home. This is different than what you do whenever you're by yourself or when you're driving in your car and you get to have those special conversations with God. I'm not saying that those things aren't special. They are. They're precious. We should keep doing them. But we shouldn't neglect the gathering together of the saints. This morning, we call for a different kind of response. You don't have to get up and come forward if you don't want to. I'm not going to make you too uncomfortable, even though I think it'd be good for you. As we sing our song of invitation this morning, would you look to the person sitting next to you? Even if it's someone that you go home with, would you realize that you're not just husband and wife, grandson, granddaughter, friend and friend, your brother and sister? You're called together into God's community by His authority? Would you put your hand around somebody and say you're looking forward to being in the kingdom of God with them forever? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I thank you so much for not making us individuals or alone, for not making us a frenzied people who out of carelessness work each other up. God, for not making us a people that are just serving a cause that we believe in, but that we're serving a cause that is the only thing that means anything in this entire world because it means our eternal life with you. God, help us to have compassion for those that are not here, for those that need your word preached to them. God, I pray that you would help us to be effective for your labor and help us to realize that when we come together, we do so as a family. Help us not to see each other just as the people that we spend our life with, but the people that we're going to spend eternity with. In Jesus' name I pray and ask all of these things. Amen. Let's stand. We'll sing number 326.